You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Hey, welcome to the Western Science Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Henry Standage, and today we are talking about radars, the all-important detection signals that warn us of looming long-term threats and keep us informed on things like the weather day-to-day. Wayne Hawking, a researcher from Western's physics and astronomy department, builds radars all around the world. Wayne handles every aspect of his research, from buying second-hand PCs to run the radars on, to building the radars on location, obsessively observing their results, and cleaning it up when he's done. So who better to have on? We talked about the challenges of producing radars all around the world, Ontario's wonky geography, and the evolution of radars in our culture. Here we go. All right, to begin, what are some of the things radars are consistently and reliably good at? They're very easy to control. They don't have the finesse that's required to run, say, a laser or a LiDAR or something like that. They can usually run 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And uh, I think that's the appeal. that They don't need a lot of on-site technical support. Once you've got them running, they tend to be fairly self-sufficient. They can do a wide range of things. As far as disadvantages go, uh, I guess one of them, say compared to a satellite, is that they're in a fixed position. So they can give a lot of information at one location, but they don't move around. Uh, On the other hand, we compensate for that by having a lot of these radars around the world, which is why I install a lot of them uh, at remote sites. So as distinct from a satellite, which has relatively poor resolution, uh, but can circle the globe on a sort of continuous basis, um, we can sample one particular spot with very, very good quality data, 24 hours a day, and we compensate by using other radars around the world. Whereas a satellite, A, it can cover the as uh, large portion of the world, but of course it can only be in one place at one time. So often the data from a satellite is spaced apart by you know, 12 hours or six hours or wherever the orbital time of the flight is. So what deficiencies do your radars overcome in an artistic sense? What is your signature? Firstly, when you design a radar, you've got to choose a frequency and the frequencies depend on what you want to look for. As for my radar specifically, uh, things that we do, uh, I use a very uh, detailed analysis method to determine winds, which is probably more sophisticated than most radars use. Uh, we can measure the strength of turbulence with our radars, which very, very few radars can do very well around the world, even ones working at our frequency. Uh, don't do a very good job of getting turbulence. We've, I think we've got the best one. And uh, we know that we're fairly well regarded in that regard because NASA contacted us for a consultancy with regard to Space Shuttle Columbia back in 2003. So we know we have a good reputation. The main thing we do that's unique is the turbulence measurements, the winds, everyone can do that. But again, we have very different type of software, which gives us a higher quality data, I think. Right. What are some of the different locations you have had your radars placed around the world? 
It depends on the frequency. We basically have two main classes of radars. There's the meteorological radars, which are designed to measure winds from pretty much ground level up to maybe 10, 15 kilometers in altitude. Some of the largest radars like this can get to 25 kilometers, but we can't afford to produce, to have transmitters that powerful. And most of those we've built are in Canada. We have a network here called the OQNet, which covers mm, a fair chunk of Eastern Ontario and some of Western Quebec. The other type of radar we have is a meteor radar. It's designed to measure meteor trails as they come into the atmosphere. Meteor physics is an interesting area. It pretty much died out in the 1970s. People thought they'd done all they could with it, and it was replaced by other techniques. But in 19, the 1990s, when I came to Canada, I decided I'd like to reinvigorate the technique for the main reason was because it's the cheapest radar you can build, and I didn't have very much money. So I thought I'd go back to square one and look at meteors. And in doing so, we worked out some techniques which hadn't been applied before. In the past, a typical meteor radar would detect 400 meteors a day. We modified the design substantially, and even though the radar only cost a few tens of thousands of dollars, we were able to get 2,000 meteors a day. And as time went by, we've improved that and improved that to the point where we can now measure, not with my radars, but other radars which I've helped design and build, uh, 30 to 60,000 meteors a day, which is a huge number of meteors. And that increase in improvement in technology encouraged a lot of other people around the world to then develop meteor radars as well. We use meteor radars for a variety of reasons. One is to study the meteors themselves, but the other is when a meteor trail comes into the atmosphere, it burns up uh, and leaves a trail of ionized particles. And this is what the radar sees, the, the trail. And the trail gets blown by the wind. And so by combining all the information we have from all of these different meteors that occur during a day, we can determine the winds and even the temperatures in the re height region between 80 and 100 kilometers altitude. The consequence of that is then we can measure winds at these heights, which are very, very special and very unique. At ground level, you're used to the weather in Calgary being different, quite different to the weather here. Mm. At upper heights, the weather around the world isn't the same, but it's very correlated. So to make our measurements of winds, we measure things called atmospheric tides, which are very similar to tides in the ocean, but have significant differences, and various types of waves, which propagate and grow to very large amplitudes at these heights. And to make use of them, we have to compare with other measurements all around the world, places like Norway and Sweden and Russia and Japan and, and Alaska, and, and then in the Southern Hemisphere as well. So the best way to analyze these is a true global model. And that one of the unique things about the meteor radars that we use is the absolute need for an interdisciplinary, broad, global study uh, to make the best value out of it. Yeah, I saw recently that the government of Canada announced that they would be installing 27 new radars by March 2023. What does expanding a radar network mean for a, a country's government and what they're trying to do? For them, it's a very different situation. They have to find the land. They have to spend large amounts of money uh, to bring big contractors in. They have a lot of pouring of concrete, and and uh, it's a fairly heavy-duty thing. It's like every site's making a new building. My radars are quite different. Mine are very portable and very mobile, and I can uh, basically set up a radar in two or three weeks uh, and have it running. Um, but I don't have the financial resource, of course, that the government of Canada has. So uh, sort of a, a trade-off there. 
What's the most challenging location you've ever had to install and design a radar? Uh, well, every site has its own different problems, and they always catch you by surprise. Now, this is another difference where between, say, government installation and my installation. In the case of the government, they'll spend a long time planning and preparing and leveling the ground and going through every possible thing that could go wrong. And if something doesn't look right, they have a lot of money to throw at it and, and fix it. In my case, we have very limited funds. So as an example, I'll give you some uh, example of situation uh, in when I installed a couple of radars in Brazil. Uh, in Brazil, our radars are typically $200,000 a year uh, to build it to surround that. So I had to still install a site in a place called Carari. I had to build three, install two radars in Brazil at the same time. I did one in a place called Santa Maria, and then I flew up to the north to do one in Carari. And um, we always installed them on flat ground. That was one of our criteria. And when I arrived at the site, it had no internet. Um, it was basically a cement building and nothing much more. Um, we had no access to the outside world. And they'd given me the side of a hill, basically, to put this instrument on. And there was nowhere else I could put it. So I'd never done that before. So on the fly, I had, and we had no access to the internet. So on the fly, I had to go back in my mind through all my previous uh, derivations and, and try and dig out how to do a three-dimensional rotational transform of the data. I had to put all the antennas on the side of a hill, derive this from scratch because uh, it's not not difficult, but it's not. It would have been easier to look it up in a book, but I didn't know this was going to happen. And then I had to integrate it all into my software, all in 24 hours. Um, and so that uh, was a surprise, and it really threw us for a bit of a loop. But we were able to handle it. So we often have found ourselves dealing with uh, situations like that where we had to function very quickly on the fly. And as a corollary to that, a couple of years later, we installed a radar for the Brazilians in Antarctica. And this had a couple of interesting consequences. Again, they'd promised us flat land, and it turned out we didn't actually have flat land. But uh, basically what happened is we got to Punta Arenas, where we're leaving from. We had all the radar equipment there, which is quite a large amount, probably a ton or more equipment. And they told us, you can't send the material like that. It has to be broken down into packages less than 70 pounds in weight. And it turned out the reason for that is they have to ferry all the equipment in by rubber dinghy from the, from the ship to the land. And we were not told anything about this. We had 24 hours till the flight took place. And then, uh, so we had, we found, we found a workshop around Punta Arenas and uh, worked like crazy. We pulled the entire transmitter and receivers assembly apart, broke it down into 70 pound chunks, built boxes for it, put it uh, all into boxes and put it on the Hercules aircraft for shipping down there. Then we found that the, the aircraft was actually full and they hadn't properly prepared for us and they had two pallets, one with food for the people at the station and one with our equipment. And they said, we're gonna to have to leave your equipment behind, we can't take it. And they said, well, we've been spending a year preparing this. So we negotiated with them. And in the end, we agreed that we'd send our pallet, unpack their pallet of food and repack all the boxes of food around our equipment so we could fit both of them in the, in the aircraft. And so that was more innovation we needed. They were very good and very cooperative and we did eventually get everything down there. And then when we finally got there, uh, we had to unload everything uh, and, and put it onto these rubber dinghies twice, once to put it onto a ship and then take it off the ship again later. And then when we finally got the equipment down to the site, which they had assured us was flat land, it was actually the side of a rather steep mountain and not flat at all. 
So that required a lot of innovation about the way we set it up. We could no longer use some of the strategies we planned for, for putting up the posts. We had to build things called gabions out of wooden boxes. We had to mount it on the side of the hill. And so the software I'd written several years earlier for having equipment on the side of a hill then came into play. And uh, so we had a frantic five weeks basically adapting to a whole bunch of things that we weren't properly informed of. So that's a typical sort of case. Sometimes it goes smoothly, sometimes not so smoothly, but we have to do a lot of things on the fly to make it happen. Your work's also gone further than just Earth. Looking upwards, how are you able to measure meteors at a higher rate? And what does that unlock? As I mentioned before, the meteors leave uh, ionized trails behind them, which the radar signal then reflects off. And um, the major purposes of it are to measure winds and turbulence and temperatures in the upper atmosphere on a continuous basis. The way we made it so that we could measure more meteors than anyone else was to change uh, the sampling strategy. Uh, we uh, used a process called aliasing, which is usually a bad thing, but because we understood it, we were able to turn it on its head and, and mean that we could transmit at a much higher pulse repetition frequency than had been used in the past. In the past, uh, people were only transmitted 400 pulses a second, typically. We were able to transmit over 2,000 pulses a second, uh, which gives us what we call an ambiguity in height. We don't know what height it comes from, but because we know where meteors are, we can work out which height should be, and therefore we can get much higher resolution than had been previously possible. And as I say, that became a standard for quite a large number of years. Uh, as far as applications go, the main application for the moment is, um, is measurement of the winds and understanding tidal motions and gravity waves in these high heights. But we also measure temperatures. And by measuring temperatures, we've actually found some interesting zones at these heights where the temperatures are so cold that superconductor engines could work there. And so this has important implications, for example, for, for space travel. And we may talk about that a little later on. Such a large part of what radars do for us is give us a pair of eyes that measure things that we can't actually see with our own. So what are some of the things that would surprise us that radars pick up that are existing out there in the world every day, but we can't see? One example which people seem to respond to is on a perfectly clear day when there's not a cloud in the sky, our radars still pick up turbulent strings and we can measure the winds from ground level up to 15 kilometers, even on a day without any clouds in the sky at all, nothing visible, just the sun and the blue sky. But our radar sees all sorts of turbulence uh, going on, which it can then use to determine the winds. To what degree is your job done when the radar is fully Although built? I build radars, that's just sort of the start of the iceberg, I, or tip of the iceberg. I, I enjoy building them. It gets me back to my roots. Um, so I, I like working out in the outside. It, to me, working on a radar, it's quite physical, but it's a bit like going to the gym and doing gardening at the same time. It's a pretty nice, pleasant sort of situation to be in. But uh, in any field I take up, I spend a lot of time under, getting the background of what I'm measuring. So I don't just build them and then walk away. And so I'm fairly well versed in turbulence theory, meteors and so forth. And the fact that I have a significant background in turbulence is uh, can be, I've done quite a lot of development of basic understanding of turbulence and how turbulence applies to the atmosphere, irrespective of the radars. And uh, in 2003, when the Space Shuttle Columbia blew up, uh, I was the first person that NASA contacted when they wanted to understand what might have happened to the aircraft from the point of the atmospheric effect. So they actually, uh, I worked for them for several months to, oh, wow. uh, 
to uh, writing certain reports for them, explaining what turbulence is like in the upper atmosphere because they didn't have as strong a background as perhaps they could have. Uh, and so there's, I think there's about five reports that I wrote, which are sort of now classified down at NASA somewhere, uh, which they refer to for these studies. Um, and uh, so that was actually quite productive and they were appreciative of what I did and I learned some stuff as well. That was part of the reason I ended up as a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada was because of the unique work that I did with uh, with NASA for dealing with this disturbance. So any field I'm in, I also very, very heavily invest in understanding the dynamics and the basic atmospheric motions and such like that go with it. So I'm just, I'm not just a construction guy. I, I do work in the theory and, and uh, practical applications as well. I think people don't really have a clear idea of what, after you've built the radar, what observation and that process is really like. So mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could kind of take us a little bit behind the curtain and, and tell us once the radar is built, what observing it is like day to day, because I think most people imagine something showing up on a radar. Oh my goodness, it's Armageddon or whatever. But what's it really like after it's been built? Well, we do keep our eye out for odd, strange events, but most of the time we don't, that's not our main goal. We are measuring turbulence strengths and what we call radial velocities, the, the speed at which the turbulence is moving through the atmosphere every minute of the day. The beam is just automatically moving around through different regions of the sky. It's not, it doesn't move physically, antennas are all locked in place. But by changing what we call the phasing of the antennas, we can point it to different regions of the sky. And so the system basically just cycles around and around and around, continually measuring these velocities. And then we combine, and we have, have a lot of online software for forming winds, temperatures, temperatures in the upper atmosphere. Ontario represents a really interesting location because it features some of the lowest latitudes for a low temperature place on Earth. What does this phenomenon mean in your when work? When you say low temperature, you're talking about the upper atmosphere. You're talking about the region between 80 and 100 kilometers. On the ground, obviously, Ontario is fairly typical worldwide. But what happens with the meteor work and uh, other work we do in the hemisphere, I should mention sometimes these, this is particularly true in the Arctic and the Antarctic, the normal radars that we use for studies of the troposphere also have a rather unusual feature in that in summertime, they get echoes from a height of 80 to 90 kilometers altitude. So very, very high up. This is where meteors spend most of their time, but normally we don't see anything there. We don't have enough strength with these tropospheric radars to see the meteor. The key thing is that it requires very, very cold temperatures for these to occur. And so we can use our meteor radars to determine the temperatures because the meteor radars are measuring at exactly the same height as these radars, which are normally used for lower atmosphere measurement, but can be adjusted just in summer to these uh, very, very um, strong scatterers. Now, why it's important is because these temperatures are very, very cold. And we can see them in Ontario, which is very unusual. And the reason we can see them in Ontario is because of something called the geomagnetic field, the, the, the magnetic field of the Earth. And it turns out there's an area called the auroral zone, which actually bends and twists around because the magnetic field is not perfectly symmetric. And there's a low point for this, uh, auroral, what we call auroral oval, in Ontario, up around Capus Casing and Abitibi Canyon. Why don't we talk about how radar building can go wrong? What are some of the situations you found yourself in? Uh, I remember one instance in, um, in Sumatra, in Indonesia. Uh, we were building a meteor radar for the Japanese. 
and it wasn't quite working. Some measurements weren't quite working out the way they should. And I was thinking about it, and it was about eight o'clock at night. The sun had set. This is the equator, so the sun sets at six pretty regularly. Uh, and I suddenly had a thought of what might be the problem. So I grabbed the torch and started running outside. And I got a couple hundred meters, and then I had the Japanese people following me, running like crazy, saying, Wayne, Wayne, come back, come back, come back. And I said, wow, I think I know what's going on. And they said, Wayne, there are tigers out at this time of night. We don't come out in the dark. <laughs> so I thought, well, tigers sounds like a pretty good reason to go back inside. So these sort of things happen all the time. In Eureka, we've been surrounded by wolf packs. And uh, So looking forward the next 50 years, where can radars go from here? There was a very strong activity of meteors between 1950 and 1970, and that was a major research. And then in the 1970s, people stopped doing it. There were other systems that replaced them, which hadn't been anticipated, and it died out into nothing. And then 20 years later in 1990, the whole method was reinvigorated. So it's hard to know where you're going to go. Um, I would imagine that as far as radio communications go, probably the next big, big thing will probably be radio communications on the moon, perhaps, so that we can communicate with spacecraft traveling back and forth to Mars. I don't know how soon that's going to happen, but uh, I don't think we're going to be able to stop ourselves going to Mars and some of these other planets, at least as outlier stations. Uh, certainly Elon Musk has plans of doing that, and uh, it's certainly possible. Um, a lot needs to be done in the meantime, but it's amazing how fast things go. As far as measurements down on Earth go, a lot of that is driven by the need. So at the moment, there's not a lot of people working in my field because we do it mainly for curiosity. But if it got to the stage where, for example, the uh, superconducting engines that I discussed before became mainstream, then knowing winds and turbulence at 80 to 100 kilometers would become as important as knowing the winds in the stratosphere these days. I mean, 50 years ago, no one cared what the winds were in the stratosphere because we just lived in the troposphere. And then suddenly jet airliners came along and the stratosphere was interesting and suddenly crucial. And even now people don't fully understand the stratosphere as well as they could, but we need weather forecasts there because that's where the aircraft fly. And so if this idea that, um, that if suborbital flight becomes the norm, which I think it will because we're causing a lot of pollution in the stratosphere, a lot of the, uh, uh, pollutants produced by high-flying aircraft are very damaging to ozone in the stratosphere. So suborbital makes a lot of sense pollution-wise because we're up way up into space where hopefully we won't be causing so much pollution. Of course, we have to use something to boost us up there in the first place. Um, but if, for example, suborbital became the main way that people travel around the world, then suddenly knowing upper atmospheric winds at 80 to 100 kilometers could be really, really important. And we would have laid the groundwork for it, but suddenly you'd have 10 times as many radars and probably with 10 times the power because now there's a need to have it. Suddenly it becomes commercial. When we build radars, we build them basically string and ceiling waste, the cheapest things we can find. I run most of my radars off old computers, XPs and that type of thing from the 2000s because I can go down to a, a cheap store and buy a $200 computer, which once cost $2,000, and run my radars effectively off it. So most of my radars run off very, very old equipment, which I modify and upgrade and do various things too. And so we would live on, you know, basically on nothing uh, to get our equipment running. But when the interest comes to study these upper levels, it'll be a whole new class of instruments. These will be 
multi-million dollar things, $50 million systems all around the world, measuring 100 times as much as we can measure. But as I say, it's not ready yet. If you've ever lost your phone, Apple has this great app called Find My iPhone. And mm-hmm. you can actually add friends on it and figure out where they are within your city. So clearly, iPhones have their own internal radar of some sort. So what would the distinction be between the radars you build and the ones that are present in our phones and other devices of that sort? Uh, mainly power. You know, I'm, t- I'm talking radars which are kilowatts and megawatts. You're talking at most a few watts, uh, probably milliwatts and most a few hundred milliwatts in most cases. And directionality. You work out where your friends are by because they work out where their nearest IP is, where their ne- nearest internet link is. Those radars work out where you are because they can actually point in the, they're like a human eye. They can point in the direction at which the signal is coming from. And so they, they have an entirely different process. You also deal with your friends because they transmit and you transmit and you have a network to send the information back and forth. We actually track, track the target itself. And that's another area I've worked in, which I didn't want to say too much about. But uh, for example, when drug runners carry drugs and such like at sea, uh, we build radars which can actually detect these ships moving out at sea. So um, that's another potential application which which could come out of all this. But uh, I think the link between the iPhones and the um, and the our normal radars is this difference in power, the different way it's doing operation. We're dealing with passive targets. You're dealing with active communication rather than looking for targets. Right. Okay. We'll wrap up soon. This is my last question. So a really admirable facet of your research is how when you leave a radar location, it usually looks exactly how it did before you arrived. So how are you able to build radars in an environmentally friendly way? And when were you able to start accomplishing that due to some of the modern technologies available? To do the work that I needed to do, I knew I needed a lot of radars. So I needed to have two things. I needed to be very efficient to put it together and I need to be able to pull it apart. Um, most people, when they build radars, they pour big, heavy foundations. There's concrete, there's concrete trucks coming in, there's tractors involved, a uh, lot of heavy equipment. Because I didn't have any really help, any help to support me, everything I did had to be done by hand. Now, when I build a radar, one of the, the larger tropospheric ones, I have to lay three kilometers of coaxial cable by hand I have to, I have 150 antennas, which I have to make out of aluminum. So that gets to many, many hundreds of meters of aluminum. I have to cut it down to put on thousands of connectors, but everything has to be done by hand. And so uh, I developed a technique. And secondly, I knew that eventually I'd have to pull it down. People are not gonna let put equipment on my land. Often I have to go on rented land or I'll find a farmer or someone who's willing to have my land. So I knew that I have to basically pull it out of it again eventually. So we developed a system whereby we could mount all our antennas on posts driven into the ground with a sledgehammer. So it's, a, it's a, something a human can do. We don't need to have a tractor to do it. Um, so typically in a radar, we'll have uh, about 300 what we call T-posts. You can buy them at TSC stores driven into the ground. We use pairs of those to mount the antennas on. Uh, the antennas are made usually in my workshop somewhere or in a, a basement. Um, and everything can be broken down to basically just thin rods of aluminum, which we then reassemble on site. Uh, we also have to build a fence around the area to keep the wild animals out. Um, but everything can be done by, by a single person. 
And so when we disassembled it, A, we want to keep all the parts because we may want to rebuild it again somewhere else. B, we have an obligation to whoever's hosting our land to return it to where it was. And um, so we made a promise to ourselves we would never use machinery. We'd never use tractors. We wouldn't use bringing cement trucks. We wouldn't bring anything that would be impossible to remove. These things cover a circle of diameter 50 meters or radius 100 meters. So they're quite, quite big constructions. But uh, we've, we've got it down to a fairly fine art, I think. We'll finish up the interview here, but thanks so much for your time, Wayne. I really did gain a whole new understanding of what radar's primary function is and the appeal of building them as a researcher. So once again, thanks for your time. Thanks, Henry. Bye. That concludes another episode of Western Science Speaks. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, and Podbean by searching Western U Science to make sure you stay up to date on the latest episodes from Season 4. You can find previous episodes of the show at uwo.ca slash sci slash podcast. For now, I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for listening.